The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, good morning. Uh, we're started. The, the capital campaign for this new building and this uh, uh, replanting uh, is now started. And w- there have been a number of us who have been very excited for this day to come and for us to get going. We've been planning for a very long time, and now it's going, and we are very exciting excited about it. Uh, we, we kicked off last week at the property itself, had a wonderful time, even had fireworks, uh, and uh, I hope many of you were able to partake in that. Uh, I want to do three things this morning, or ask you actually to do three things uh, with me over this campaign pain period. Um, and, and the first one is to really, to well, first of all, four things. First of all, take out your bulletin, and there's a sheet and we've, uh, right in the bottom uh, right-hand corner of the RBC News, uh, there's a, a little section there. And I, I want you to do um, uh, three things in this campaign. We're going to be asking you to attend a small group information center. What is a small group information center? Uh, sorry, small group information meeting. It's an information meeting in a small setting. Simple as that. There will be sign-up sheets for you to attend. We want everyone to go to one of those meetings, uh, and they'll start, that w- the sign-up sheet will be in the foyer next week. So number one, attend a, a small group information center. There you will be uh, given a lot more information about the project and, and, and told or allowed to, um, to think about how you might be able to participate in this venture. So that's number one. Number two, uh, there's a, something called the very creative name, the Capital Funds Main Event. This is the main event. We are very excited about this day. It is October the 29th, so you need to write in your calendars um, October 29th. Do not miss it. Uh, book off the whole half day. It's going to start in the evening, but it's going to be a great time. Kids and everything will be taken care of as well. More information on that later, but I wanted you to get that count, that date in your calendar. The third thing I'd ask you to do in this campaign period is maybe a little more spiritual, and that's to really to lean in. There's been lots of great discussions starting already on the, on the campaign, which is wonderful to hear. Lots of chatter, lots of good discussion as a community as we start to think about what this means for us. But as you lean into this and ask yourself, well, what's, what's stopping me from being fully committed to that? Capture that thought and make that your faith journey. Because all of us have different things that might get in the way of us wanting to participate fully. Now's the time to do that. And, and, to, and to work on that over the period, the journey that we're going through over the next month or so to figure out what God would have you to do, how you have you grow through this period. So thank you very much for that. I also have the distinct pleasure of introducing Phil Entema. Um, is he somewhere here? Oh, there he is. Come on up here, Phil. Uh, Phil Entema has been working very closely with the capital campaign and the, uh, the team, as well as our pastors, and co- coming up with a a good plan for us to follow um, here. Uh, he's got lots of experience. Um, I would say that Phil is, uh, is a good man. He's been married 47 years to his wife, Terry. He only looks uh, 40, so that you were minus seven when you got married, I think. Uh, he, uh, he does things in threes. So he has uh, three daughters, nine grandchildren, and he's had three different distinct careers as a pastor uh, and church planner, heading up the whole NAB, Uh, organization, and then more recently in the last 12 years, really working on these types of projects, capital projects, stewardship projects, and um, we're thrilled. We we have a great working relationship with the the church, with Phil, and we're happy to hear what you have to say to us this morning about this whole time that we're entering into. Thank you, Phil. 
Uh, thank you again for having me. It's a joy to be a part of this. I believe deeply in what you're about to do. It's an exciting time, but it's also a pretty challenging time. Uh, the new campus, the new building, is going to allow you to minister in ways you've, to this point, not been able to. As a former pastor, the most exciting thing to me is moving from a campus where hundreds of cars pass by on a daily basis to moving to a campus where thousands of cars pass by on a daily basis. Your chance to impact Winnipeg goes up dramatically. So the plan is a good one. The building plan is quite excellent. They've refined it and refined it and refined it, and it's a very functional building. And in the next few weeks, the uh, campaign committee is going to help you be informed as to exactly why we're building it, what we're doing, and how in the world are we going to pull this off. But in the few minutes that I have here, I don't want to talk really about the organization of the building, but rather the journey you're going to be on, that I've been on myself. And so I'm going to speak to you as a fellow sojourner, working my way towards generous sacrificial giving. Uh, it's a very predictable path. And incidentally, a sacrificial gift is not the end of an event where you just wake up one morning and decide to do something. It's spending weeks allowing God's spirit to speak to us, to reveal himself what exactly he expects from each individual to uh, commit. At the end of the process, we want you to give by revelation. No one is going to tell you what to give. We feel God is going to do that. Fits perfectly with pastor's message that we're looking for heavenly wisdom for God to speak to us. And the predictable path is this. Usually the first number that pops in our head in the number that pops in my rather carnal mind is, what could I give and still fall asleep at night? Uh, a little less than, uh, than what God wants. So as I begin to ponder that number, God speaks to me. He tells me that all that I possess, he owns. He reminds me of Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who dwell therein, and that perhaps he has positioned me for just a time as this. So as I continue to ponder it, the number may go up a little bit, and now I'm beginning to think, okay, how much could I give to God and not disturb any of my financial goals and plans? I'm a real planner, I'm a goal setter, I have a number I want to retire with, and all of a sudden, God's will begins to collide with some of my own personal plans for his things. I begin to feel a bit uncomfortable, and I know where all this is headed, that God is going to push me beyond my comfort level. And I have to warn you, as God begins to reveal to you, it will become a bit uncomfortable as his plans collide with your plans. The longer I'm in this process, more verses begin to come to mind. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, twice he says this, I've given you all you need, and I've given you more. It begins to dawn on me at that point that I live far better than the rest of the world does, and that God has blessed me with more than I need. At that point, I begin to surrender my own plans. And on an altar, I lay before him my income, my assets, and at this time, I begin to say, God, what is it you would have me to do? At that point, I have freedom. God begins to speak. He whispers a number. 
a number I wouldn't have been prepared for weeks before, but now I am. And now here I am, in my well into my 60s. And you know what? In being generous, in risking a few times, I ended up exactly where I thought I would. All of my financial goals were met. And I'm going to assert to you, they were met not be in spite of being generous. They were met because I was generous. You will never be the loser for being generous with God. You'll be challenged, you'll be pushed. Open your eyes, open your ears. So my hope is this, turn up at one of these small groups so you can make an informed decision. But even more than that, go to your prayer closet and pray the Lord of the harvest. What exactly is it you want me to give? So in the end, you give by revelation. Malachi chapter 3, put me to the test. And I will open up, they'll bring the full tithes to the storehouse, and I will open up the windows of heaven and pour out every blessing upon you in abundance. That's been my experience, and I think it could be yours too. So I'll be praying for you every day during this process as you allow God to reveal to you what he wants you to do, and you will be blessed because of it. Amen. Thank you so much, Phil. It occurred to me as you were sharing, Phil, that I can't think of one biblical character whose personal plans didn't collide with God's plans at some point in redemptive history. Uh, nor can I think off the top of my head of anybody in church history that was used by God that didn't have personal plans change. And so thanks for that language and thanks for sharing with us and walking with us. I'm excited about what this fall has for us as a church family. And like all families, we're making decisions this fall. We're making decisions together. Um, we're going to be, over the next two months, uh, walking through Scripture, walking through Bible study and praying together. You're going to be hearing a ton. These information evenings are very important. And uh, then at a certain time in November, we're going to be asking us together as a family to make a decision under God's leading. And so would you be much in prayer about this? We've chosen for this season, this campaign is called a season of growing together. You'll notice the new banners at the front of the sanctuary. It's from Isaiah chapter 61. They will be called Oaks of Righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. And uh, we have chosen this verse because we, we, we believe that God is forming His people into being Oaks of Righteousness. I love this passage because it's the passage that we see in Luke 4 when Jesus gets up on the first day of His public ministry and He says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. And he's anointed me to do these things. And I, I believe the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon every group of people that is surrendered to him. And he's anointed us to do something in our generation. I believe it has to do with buildings sometimes. And so that's the thing that we're going to be praying and asking God for wisdom about this fall. St. Augustine once said that where scripture speaks, God speaks. John Wesley said that I am a creature of the day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, <clears throat> the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. He has written it down in a book. So give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book, John Wesley says. 
We believe here in our church family that this book, the Bible, the scriptures, the written word of God, is a critical piece of what it is all about in our transformation, in our spiritual formation to become oaks of righteousness, to be mature in Christ Jesus, to grow into the full stature of the measure, a measure of Jesus Christ. We believe that the Word of God is critical, and so as we enter into this season of time, we've chosen 1 Kings to be this scripture that we're going to track with and study during these days. And you can do, do well by yourself if you want to get more out of your relationship with God in these days and in your study of the Word. You can not only be reading 1 Kings throughout the week as we preach through it, but you can also be taking that little blue insert in your bulletin out and taking some notes. And sometimes along the way as I'm preaching, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit kind of nudges you on something, and you have to take some notes, and you have to go and deal with something later. That's a good thing to do. Another thing you can do is you can talk with what God's teaching you through the Word with somebody else, whether you're in a life group, a Bible study, a family, but talk about it. When you talk about what God's doing in you, you become accountable for the things that He is doing, and you're able to grow and take that next step in maturity. So I want to encourage you to study the Word with us today, or th these coming days, and uh, we look forward to it. How did we arrive at First Kings? Well, we've had the pattern here at White Ridge Baptist Church of going back and forth between the Old and the New Testament as we want to understand the whole counsel of God. And when we came to the next season of time in the Old Testament, this is the scripture that God was leading us to. A couple of years ago, we were in uh, Joshua, God leading his people into the promised land. And then uh, last year, we took the whole time in First and Second Samuel, understanding King David and all of his reign. And now we're into First Kings, and King David is dying at the beginning of First Kings, and Solomon, his son, is taking over as king of Israel. First and Second Kings was originally one book, covers about 400 years of history. Um, it's an incredible season of time between about 971 B.C. until 561 B.C., and uh, there's an incredible story here for us to, to learn from. You'll notice in that insert in your bulletin, I've, I've written a theme for First Kings. It might surprise you, the theme of First Kings is this. That in an age of national and spiritual decline in Israel, God raises up anointed leaders and pursues a people who will consecrate themselves to the work of building up His temple on earth for His glory. He calls for wholehearted devotion. He punishes disobedience, but He always is faithful to keep His promises by grace. The remarkable thing about studying history is that the history books never tell the whole story. And even as this author sets pen to paper and begins to study or to account for the, the history of Israel during the time of Solomon and, and on beyond the divided kingdom, he is writing hundreds of years later, likely during the exile. And here he is, and you've got to listen to what's on between the lines if you're going to really understand the things that are happening. What does this teach us? I want to say there's one very important lesson that I believe 1 Kings is going to teach us, and I want to just paint it as clearly as I can to you up front before we get into the text this morning. And that is that we can be living in an 
country and see national and moral and spiritual decline unlike we have ever seen in Canada. And in the middle of such decline as history is being written, we have the opportunity as God's people to be difference makers. So at a time in our country when churches are closing and buildings are being sold and whole denominations in Canada, whole denominations are on the verge of extinction. What does that say about our ministry, about a people who is deciding they, they, they're led to invest millions of dollars or put up new buildings and start new programs? What does it say? Well, I believe that God still faithfully is raising up anointed leaders, pursuing a people who will swim against the tide of moral and spiritual decline, trust in Him to do great things, accomplish purposes for our generation through people fully committed to Him. He does not need a perfect people, and He doesn't even need a strong people. He just needs a faithful people that will follow His lead. Scripture teaches us that God is the God of the impossible, that God loves to defy statistics and averages and norms. He loves to show Himself strong among a people fully devoted to Him. I can see throughout church history that during the driest of times in church history, you can read about it, there has always been individual local congregations and churches that have thrived. And I can also point to you in church history that during the Great Awakening or in times of revival, there have been local churches that have died and closed their doors. What does that say to us except that the fact is God is not a follower, but He's a leader. God is not a follower of social trends and spiritual declines throughout the age of history in Western civilization. God is a leader. He's just waiting to see who's following and when he finds a people that are ready to follow, he can accomplish his purposes through that people in their location, in this world, and in their generation. And so as we open up the first chapters of First Kings, we see a kingdom already in decline. We know later on in history it's going to go in further decline, but now the writer of 1 Kings is saying, but, but what about this guy Solomon? And what about the people of God that he leads? What will they do? I believe that's a really key lesson for us as we begin to open up the Scriptures. And I'd ask you to do that now and open up the Bible to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. And we're going to dive into the first few chapters of 1 Kings, and obviously there's a lot of stuff we don't have time to look at, but um, would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings 3, beginning in verse 1, and if you're able to stand with me, I would invite you to do so now and listen to the Scripture being read. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, and Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city, David until, city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, 
were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, though, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. So Solomon answered, you have shown kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and then he gave a feast for all his court. May God bless his word to us today. I'd like to share four points with you. You'll see them in the blue insert in your bulletin. Time does not permit to get down into some of the introductory stuff, but the important things are these. Number one is that David was an old king about to die, and he was doing nothing to plan for his successor. And we read in the scriptures that in in 1 Kings 1 and 2, that uh, his oldest living son, Adonijah, was tired of waiting to be crowned king in the place of his father. And so he leads a revolt, and he gathers around him some loyal subjects, and he goes off and he crowns himself king and begins to celebrate. And some of the loyal subjects of David hear about this, and so they inform Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she goes in to King David's bedroom, and she, she tells to him that, that this has happened, that Onijah has crowned king, and, and you promised that Solomon, my son, would be king and heir to you. Now, David is in a depressed state. Instead of looking up toward God, he's turned his face toward the wall. He's been a negligent husband and father and king. But now in this moment, God, by his mercy, shakes him out of his slumber. And he rises and he says, I will fulfill my promise to Solomon. Your son, Bathsheba, will be king. And so we read in the scriptures that Solomon is anointed king, and the first item on the business agenda in chapter 2 is to do a holy house cleaning of the, of, the, of the kind which David had never done in the final years of his reign, because he's depressed, his face is toward the wall, he's not doing anything to lead. 
But David is wise enough to know that he does not want to pass his problems on to his son. And so in chapter 2, he tells them about all the enemies of David and of the throne that are yet alive that God's justice would deal with. And Solomon has to go and do the deeds of having people killed that should have been killed earlier. Now, it sounds rather crude for us in our way of thinking, but honestly, in that day, Bathsheba, Solomon, and all the other loyal subjects of David would have been killed if they would have not done this. And Solomon's kingdom would not be firmly established had it not been for this kind of, uh, of addressing of enemies within the court. Now, how do we apply that? I, I, wanna, I want you to know the New Testament is so clear in how we apply some of these Old Testament scriptures like this. And the application is very simple. There is one king that your heart is designed for. His name is Jesus. And there can be no rival kings, no rival warfaring enemies against that kingdom that he wants to establish in your heart. And so whenever King Jesus comes along, taps you on the shoulder and says, that thing is a danger to your kingdom, my kingdom in you, you cannot cohabitate with me and him or it. That's when you have to do serious business with God. That's the application. And Paul, the apostle, is so clear. He says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. You see, there's only room for one king on the throne of your heart. And that's the way any kingdom has to be established. As fathers, we do not want our negligence, as we saw King David finishing his days, as fathers, we do not want our negligence to be the legacy that we pass on to our children. There is always baggage that one generation will pass on to another generation in their parenting, in their treatment, in their upbringing, or whatever. But God says, no, you don't have to carry that on to the next generation. You can deal with that stuff now. That's what Solomon was doing before he took the throne. The second thing I want to say is that Solomon's ruin is already forewarned. The author of Kings, probably writing during the exile, tells us about the seeds of duplicity that are already planted even in these glory days of Solomon. Now think about it. Up until now and far after Solomon, after the divided kingdom, the exile, and so on, when you think about Israel, and if you were to talk to a Jewish person, the glory days were Solomon. The glory days were David and Solomon. And yet in the glory days, there is the seeds of duplicity happening already. There are three things that mistakes that Solomon makes before he asks the Lord for wisdom. Three mistakes that he has made. Number one, he's formed wrong alliances. Number two, he's married wrong women. And number three, he has engaged in wrong worship. First of all, the alliance that we see in verse 1 is with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Can you imagine a kingdom around Israel worse to ally, ally with than, than, than Egypt? What, what, what was he thinking? To ally with Egypt in this way. And, of course, that was common among the kings of the day. They would make alliances with surrounding countries. 
And yet, Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses is very clear in his last instructions. When you get to the new land that God's going to give you, appoint the king that God chooses, and don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back. You can never go back. And that speaks a word for us as Christians. You can never go back. And so here is, here is an alliance made. And, of course, we have our alliances that we make. We have our compromises that we make. As Christians, we could generate a list this morning. If we were to, to gather our heads together and I were to ask you to make a list of all the ways that you are, com- are, are, are inclined to compromise your faith to accommodate to the world around you, we could make a list of those things. And we need to be constantly vigilant about how is it that I am compromising in the way that I am living out my faith. The alliance with Egypt was sealed with another feature, and that was the marriage of Pharaoh's daughter. Again, a common practice in the days to guarantee these alliances. Marry my daughter, my son off. How could you hurt me now? And so these, these were for political reasons, these weddings, and uh, they weren't for love, and yet the common practice of the day. The third compromise came with those marriages. With the marriages came the foreign gods, the foreign women that were invited into Israelite male homes, the the men that married Israelite uh, women from other countries and that. They they brought their foreign worshiping idols with them. And so again, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses was clear. Do not let your sons and daughters marry for they will serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you. You know, the Bible is clear on this. Old and New Testament. The Bible supports the marriages of couples from different races. I love it when I see that. But the Bible is not supportive of marriages from different religions, different faiths. That doesn't work. That leads to problems. You know, I think as pastors... We, the, part of the thing we love, I'll speak for personally, the part of the things I love the most about being a pastor, I love it when somebody's growing up and then, they, and then they're a teenager and then they're a young adult and then they come knocking on my door and say, Pastor, we'd like to get married. I love that when that happens. All, all of us as pastors love those seasons of time. For young people and some who are not so young, maybe, uh, that come to us for, for marriage, not looking anywhere in this room. And um, I love those seasons, but I want you to know, us pastors can save you some time, possibly. Because if you have lived your life on the fringe of the body of Christ and in relationship with Jesus, to the point where you are engaged more deeply with someone who is an unbeliever, and you can come to the stage of the intimacy of your relationship where you want to be married, but you are not in a relationship of being equally yoked with another believer and follower of Jesus Christ, let me save you some time. You don't need to come knocking on our doors. Because the very first engagement that we have with any couple that comes our way is this really honest, serious, put-it-all-on-the-table kind of talk that is accompanied with prayer And if it results in us feeling a sense of conscience speaking against us, that that you're not really engaged to a believer, and yet you are seriously wanting to follow Jesus, we we can't participate in that. We can't participate in that. I hope that's not... I love I love weddings. I hope that's not your story. 
And I know that Pat and I, at least once in our pastoral ministry life, have talked a couple out of being married. And afterwards, the, male, the groom was so grateful to us that we did. I take that as an aside because I believe the scriptures are clear in all parts of them. Chapter 4, verse 1, or sorry, verse 4 of chapter 3 is a, a key turning point. It says this, the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. This is the king of Israel who has a center of worship in Jerusalem. He's gone to Gibeon, and he, he finds the high places of idolatry, and he offers thousands of animals as a sacrifice from the Lord's herds and treasuries. This is before Solomon had wisdom. And the thing that's amazing, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think I even saw this till a, a week or two ago. The whole encounter between verses 5 to 15 is a dream. It's a dream. It's a key turning point, though. And, and this dream is like you and I. When we dream, they can seem very real. And for Solomon, this dream seemed very real. He was doing business with God. He was in an encounter with God, the living God. Have you ever had a dream like that? It's so real and so impacting that it results in a life change. I've met people that have had dreams like that that have resulted in a life change. I heard a story just this past summer when I was at a church in Kenora, and I heard Ray and Sandy Allery of Transworld Radio speak. And they spoke of a woman from Saudi Arabia who had a dream about Jesus Christ. She'd never heard about Jesus Christ. But she had a dream about Jesus Christ, and she woke up from that dream, and she had to find out about Jesus Christ. And when she did, she came to know him as, as a, a follower of Christ. And now she is living in Egypt as a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, we can have dreams that are life-impacting. What did Solomon do right after this dream? Do you notice it in verse 15? In verse 15, it says, When Solomon awakes, he returns to Jerusalem, stands before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrifices burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and then he gave a feast for his whole court. This is a redirection of the man that God anointed to be leader of Israel. Incredible. Just as God sought out Peter, we spoke of it a few weeks ago, when Peter had denied knowing Jesus, and, and Jesus sought out Peter at the Sea of Galilee, gone back to his fishing. He sought a personal encounter. I see here, God has a personal encounter with Solomon. And it's, it's life-changing. It's, it's pivotal. It's the key text. And we see Solomon ask for the things that we see asked for. Let's take a look at it. The third point, Solomon's request granted by God. This personal encounter, you know, we see Solomon, first of all, asking. We see gratitude in Solomon, and he thanks God for his faithfulness to David. We see humility. He says, I'm a little child. How can I lead God's people? Now, he's not a little child. He's a young man. But he's saying, I feel like a little child when it comes to this duty that you've placed upon me. He says, he's, there's prudence here. He says, give me a discerning heart. He could have asked for wealth. He could have killed all his enemies. He could have asked for more money and fame. 
But no, he says, give me a discerning heart. God is pleased, and he says, I'm going to give you what you asked for, and I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you the fame and the money. Now, this is an incredible passage of Scripture, because as soon as he gets this discerning heart and this wisdom, the, the wisdom is acquired in one verse, and in the next verse, the wisdom is applied. Now, that's a good lesson for us. Do you have a gift that God gave you? Is there something new that God has placed in your hands? Don't, don't sit on it. Put it into work. The gifts that God gives, He wants us to apply. What's the first application? We read in verses 16 and following in chapter 3 that somebody brings in these two women. They're prostitutes. And the story is that, that they have both had a baby, but one of them rolled over on the baby at night and killed the baby. And the other prostitute says, the baby that she killed is her baby, and now she's saying, trying to tell you that the baby she has is my baby. Is my baby. And, and the other woman has, the, you get where I'm going with this, right? And the other woman has the same story, and the whole of Israel is on pins and needles waiting to see, what's Solomon going to do? Solomon says, bring me a sword. A sword is brought into the court and given to Solomon. He says, cut the baby in two and give a half to each one. And the real mother cries and says, no, she can have the baby. And Solomon says, give this baby to the woman who cried out, for she is the real mother. And look what it says in verse 28. It says, all Israel heard the verdict the king had given. They held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Wow. God had given him a gift and Solomon immediately put that gift into service. Finally, I want to say that Solomon's renown was because of God's wisdom. We see in verse 34 of 1 Kings chapter 4, Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Uh, wow, incredible, this power. And the question that maybe you and I are asking is, what was God thinking? Wasn't this a risky business? Putting into the hands of a young man such fame, such wisdom, such knowledge, such wealth, the eyes of all are on him. How is he going to handle this? And of course, he, he took some things that God didn't give him, like foreign wives. And the question is, how is he going to do? How is he going to manage this? The same question is asked of us. Believe it or not, we might focus on Solomon, but God is asking us. I've just put in your hands a new position at work, a new responsibility, a new relationship. New resources coming into your bank. New this, new that. God's saying, what are you going to do with what I've given you? His eyes are on all of us. How will we lead? Clearly, God had a purpose for giving Solomon wisdom to, to govern his people, to organize his kingdom, to unite the people, to build the temple. God has a purpose for every gift that he gives us as well. You know, I must say that I, I marvel, I'm humbled as I look at the giftings that God has distributed in our church family. When I look at the last two years, how we have felt the, the wind of God blowing in our sail to get organized for the building of this project. And I've watched as volunteer after volunteer have stepped into teams 
and people have, have brought giftings from God and abilities and connections and networking and all kinds of things so that these, these things are all happening. No one person knows the whole story, actually, because there's so many different avenues of this thing happening, and yet God has assembled it. I believe that that indeed is the sign of God in His, in his saying, I'm giving you all these gifts, these people, these, these resources, these, these gifts and abilities, because I have purposes to fulfill in your generation among you for future generations. I believe that's what God is doing. Here's an interesting thing, though. I, I want to just underline this as I conclude. The greatest thing of all is that we, we don't get to just follow a human king like David or Solomon. We get to follow the king of kings. We get to follow Jesus. And there's a passage in Matthew 12 I just want to refer to quickly. It is incredible. At one point, in, in early in the chapter in verse 6, Jesus is comparing himself to the priesthood and to the temple. And he says, but now one greater than the temple is here, referring to himself. Later on in verse 41, he is referring to the prophets, and he says, and now one greater than Jonah is here. And then the next verse he says, he's talking about um, the kings of Israel, and he says, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Isn't that incredible? Jesus, the prophet and priest and king, has said, I am your leader. You follow me. I've got the plan. Come to me if you lack wisdom. James 1, 5, if you lack wisdom, come to me because I give generously. And the kind of wisdom I give that comes from heaven, like Kevin read earlier in the service, is a wisdom that we want to see assembled in our body of believers. You know, in these last couple of years, I, I, I've been engaged with knowing what the land is all about and the building plans. There's been so many people speaking into that and the money and the raising of it, the, the capital funds and how it's going to be done. I've been watching that, but you know where my eyes have really been? Do you know what my ears have really been listening for and my eyes have really been looking for? I've been looking to see if the wisdom that comes from heaven is among us. The wisdom that comes from our King Jesus who is leading this body of believers. Because James chapter 3 and verse 17 says that the wisdom that he gives is pure and peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere. And so as I have been watching this whole thing develop, I am looking at you. And I'm looking at me. And I'm looking at us. And I'm looking at interactions and relationships and where there is potential for friction and conflict and someone to just walk away or whatever. I'm looking at how are we resolving? How are we living out the wisdom of God in the way that it comes from heaven? Because that's the true building up of the body of Christ. That's how oaks of righteousness grow. It's in the wisdom of God being planted in our relationships because we've said that we believe the best way to make followers of Jesus Christ is through healthy relationships. Could I ask the worship team to come? And as we, as we have them come, could you bow with me? And would you join me in asking that God would make this sermon series, as well as our study of the indwelling life of Christ, that study book, and to make it a powerful time for our church as we seek the wisdom of God for our ministry. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord our God.
that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we follow you, Jesus. We want to follow you. We want to trust in you. We want to root out duplicity and weeds. We want to be oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of your splendor. Would you, O oh God, be merciful to send the wisdom we need for all the work you call us to be and do. And thank you in advance for your grace and generosity toward us. In Jesus' name.